Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm here with Martin Gurry, who is a, uh, a brilliant thinker and with an interesting backstory. He was a former CIA analyst, and he's the author of Revolt of the Public, which is about how social media and the internet has radically transformed the way that we relate to authority, to power, to trust, uh, to citizenship, to democracy. And he's a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm also a fellow there, and uh, Mercatus has uh, generously supported this podcast. So a big uh, thank you to them. And uh, welcome, Martin. Oh, my pleasure to be here. So my understanding is that you grew up in Cuba, and I'd love to hear just a little bit of a personal account of kind of your your story of coming to the U.S., how you came to work at the CIA, and what your own experience kind of having lived in multiple places uh, with very different cultures and, and views on, on politics has, um, has done for the way that you kind of think about the world and, and how you regard your, you know, your, your project. Yeah, I was born in Cuba. I always say that before I was 10 years old, I had experienced um, a right-wing dictator and essentially a left-wing totalitarian regime. So one big difference between me and the average American walking on the streets is I know that there are alternatives that are way worse. Everybody here thinks that we're we're in some sort of apocalyptic moment. Uh, I, I have seen the apocalypse. It's not this, okay? Um, uh, culturally, however, Cuba, if you were a middle-class Cuban, like my, my family was, it was very Americanized. So the cultural transition, all the TV shows were the same, all the movies were the same. Um, the, the music, uh, the Cubans had their own music, of course, but that was played here. And uh, I listened to Elvis Presley in Havana. So it, 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 the cultural transition was fairly easy for the Cubans, I think. That's probably why they did so well in Miami when they landed there. Um, the story of me joining CIA is, 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 I probably shouldn't even tell it because it's going to ruin any shred of glamour that you might think is associated with CIA, which, by the way, there shouldn't be much because it's just a big bureaucracy. Um, simply, they put out an ad in the paper and a long chain of people that ended up with me uh, said, um, you should apply to this, you should apply to this, you should apply to this. I kept saying, it's CIA, it's CIA, it's CIA. Well, I applied. My wife wrote a resume that was, um, I won't say fictitious, but made me look a lot better than I really was. And uh, suddenly I was in, I was in. And I was a, for my entire career, I was an analyst uh, sometimes a manager of analysts, but uh, an, an analyst of uh, global media, which CIA, by the way, at that time had probably the best shop in the world to look at global media. What does it mean to be an analyst in terms of the bureaucracy? Like, let's say you do your analysis and then you give it over to a manager, or if you're a manager, who do you give it over to? Like, what's the sort of theory of change within the organization? I, I mean, I won't get too much specific detail, but... There are whole directorates in CIA. That's that it's organized along directorates, and they change names. But um, they had a directorate of of intelligence, uh, which was the analytic shop. The global media analysis was separate. But just to give you an idea, um, the top dog in analysts put his fingers on every piece of copy that was going to the president. In other words, it was it was hands on 
from the very top. It was very controlling. It was, um, I think, um, uh, very bureaucratic. Uh, so what the president got was not just something that some brilliant analysts, and there were a lot of brilliant people in that organization, came up with while looking at the world. It was something that a whole bunch of other people above that analyst had put their fingers on and changed this word to that, and don't say this because it'll trigger some some horrible reaction in the president. This and that and the other. So it's it is a very bureaucratic organization, and and uh, I don't think it's possible to be that large and not be bureaucratic. Apparently, Daniel Liebeskind, a great architect who started off as an avant-garde artist making little uh, anti-art sculptures at the Venice Biennale. Uh, he's the uh, he's the architect behind the new World Trade Tower building, and only four percent of his vision for the World Trade Tower building actually came to actuality because of all of the uh, negotiation and uh, you know laws and 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 so forth uh, that that go into actually taking a blueprint and making it into a giant building. Yeah, I have to say that was that was a uh, competition that the federal government won. Uh, the Pentagon was rebuilt within a year, within a year, okay? And that spot in Manhattan uh, was a hole in the ground, a gigantic hole in the ground for like 10 years before the powers that be in New York City could agree what the heck to do there. So you're an interesting person and someone that I wanted to talk to for many reasons, but I'll just give a little bit of my own sort of personal motivation in wanting to connect. I... Um, you're you're someone who spent a long time in what you call the center, and um, you also wrote a book about how the center is the center cannot hold the center. <laughs> uh, you know, mainstream institutions and authorities no longer have the power and the monopoly on authority that they once had, and so whether you whether we like it or not, we have to give a lot more credence to the border. That distinction between center and border is one that you borrow from uh, anthropologist of religion Mary Douglas. Uh, very interesting uh, theorist. And um, I think you're someone who spent a lot of time in the center. You're someone whose writing probably is going to arrive more to people in the center than the periphery, though you never know with the internet. But, you know, um, it's an, it's a very intelligent book. And uh, you write for, you still write for mainstream institutions like uh, City Journal and um, and so forth, even though you blog. So I, I wanted to share personally that I think of myself as a person raised in the center. Um, I, you know, I went to Brown, I went to Oxford, I did a PhD, I went to rabbinical school. I've spent a lot of my own, I put in my tushy time sitting in the, in the center and uh, not without my reservations, but I'm not, I'm not about to be a full-on barbarian at the gates, a full-on marauder. I, I think of my position as somewhat vexed. Uh, a, a sort of a, a desire to triangulate between the border and uh, the center rather than choose one over the other. And uh, I was interested to hear about your experience as someone who spent a lot of time in the center, uh, formed perhaps by the center, but also somebody who as an analyst and as an advocate um, has come to see the, the power of those who are outside of the center. Well, you know, a lot of that is temperamental. Uh, some people are natural in-persons. Some people are natural out-persons. And I'm, I'm like um, 
I'm like a homeless person. I mean, I and you're 100% right. Uh, my my career was at the center, and I was my definition of an elite is somebody who belongs or or participates in the work of an institution. And I was, of course, that's a mighty institution that I was a part of, and I was very proud to be part of it. I still am. Um, but I, it's like a suit that doesn't quite fit me, you know. That's a temperamental thing. I, when I when you are inside trying to make a career, you hate it because you feel like, well, I wish I could be one of those guys who just stands up and says all the right words. But when you are, you know, actually sitting back trying to make sense out of the world, you kind of feel like it's a good place to be because you can see perspectives that all of the people who are innies miss completely. And of course, what what the insight I got while being in in uh, CIA, I was very fortunate to be in that in that uh, global media center, and to see the what I call the tsunami of information generated by by the digital sweep the world, and then to see bizarre uh, social and political turbulence right behind that tsunami starting to generate that of which. Uh, we have yet to reach the end. And so it became clear that our institutions needed to change. These were institutions that were set up uh, for the last century for a very top-down, I talk, you listen uh, method of, of uh, organizing humanity and worked very well for that. Basically brought in all the masses that entered history, the 20th tens, maybe hundreds of millions of human beings that entered history in the 20th century, were organized into mass groups and were told essentially, this is the information you need to, to get ahead in life. Uh, when I say this, it's the truth and you will accept it. And we all said, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and moved on. Well, that world is gone, that world is gone. Uh, and it has less to do with the brilliance or the um, uh, righteousness of the public. It has simply to do with the fact that um, we as human beings know so little. And the 20th century model, that industrial model of organization, assumed that we we knew everything. In other words, all you had to do was throw enough data, power, and money at what was almost invariably called a problem, even though you were talking about things like racism or, or economic inequality, which are far from being mathematical equations. You threw enough and you came up with all the right equations for that, you would reach utopia. You, you, you basically would overcome the human condition. Um, that model doesn't work anymore. And of course, what happens is you look at the people who are uh, in charge, the elites, and Every mistake that they make is blatantly there. They are, there's always some smart person in the public who is an expert in the subject who knows more than that particular elite, whether your name is, you know, Biden, Fauci, whatever. Somebody's going to know more and say, but wait, you said this before. Now you're saying the opposite. I have you here on video saying one thing. Now you're saying the opposite. Explain yourself. Um, or you said this was going to happen. It didn't happen. The opposite happened. Explain yourself. And after a while, you don't even ask them to explain yourself. You just lose all trust. And you have this massive, massive loss of faith in, in these institutions and, and in the elites that run them. That is the moment we are in history today, a moment of, of, of I would call it terrible decadence. Uh, basically, we're, we, when the framework for organizing truth or, or organizing humanity fails to 
evolve and the, and the environment changes radically, then you have decadence. You have a framework that doesn't fit anymore. And that's sort of where we are right now. I have a lot uh, of thoughts on what you just said, but my first would be, you know, imagine that you're giving this uh, this declaration to a technocratic elite who still believes very much in managerialism and, you know, Taylorism, and that um, that maybe they would maybe they would even concede the point, you know, we we're, we don't know everything, we don't have utopia in our reach, but we certainly have a better handle on things than. Uh, the wisdom or the foolishness of the crowd. Is this just a rabbit duck thing? Like in cognitive science, you look at a picture, you see it as a rabbit or a duck. There's there's a standoff and, and the two of you will just see it differently and there's no persuasion? Or do you think that um, that there's a, an argument that you have that could sort of make, make the elites um, less confident in themselves? Because one thing that you mentioned in the book is that a lot of times when there's a crisis, uh, let's say after 9-11, the elite response is we, we would have figured it out if we just had more funding. So in a sense, that's a, you know, both the critique and the defense are taking place in a realm that's not quite empirical. And uh, so how do you actually have that conversation? Can it and, be and in addition, what happens when an elite fails in such an egregious manner that even the elite's can't defend them anymore, right? What happens when, when when that is the case? Well, you fire them and you hire some more elites. It, it, it I mean, it it's a self perpetuating game. Yeah, let, let me think about that one. That's that, that's a good question. I think to the extent that elites pretend to know what they really don't know, to the extent that they they um they have what the Greeks used to call hubris. They have a, a belief that they can reach up to heaven and, and steal its thunder and, and, and fix the human condition uh, to, the, to the extent that they um, say that uh, very complex and, and historically um, difficult social conditions are problems, like a mathematical problem. To the extent that they say and do all of this, the, the public just walks away, just secedes. I, I mean, it's it's a hypothesis because I don't know anybody who's doing it, but I would suspect, to the degree that that uh, the elites acknowledge their ignorance and acknowledge that um, truth is something we all come up together. It's not something I hand down from heaven. It's something that that uh, whole communities cobble together. And so now in the day of the internet, you who are the public are helping me come up with what the truth is. And to the degree that there are issues we want to change, not, not solve, because you don't solve human relations. You want to change them because they're, 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 there's something that you find morally abhorrent, like inequality or something like that. Um, you need uh, as much help as possible, and you appeal to the public to help. There are mechanisms for doing this. The problem is the models for being an elite that I can, in my meager imagination, come up with or have read about in the 21st century are far less fun than the model for being an elite in the 20th century, where you essentially were a godling, all right? So there's a lot of resistance. I mean, you look at this uh, administration in, in office right now, the Joe Biden administration, and it's like an illustration of everything that I'm saying. <clears throat> essentially, you have a guy who spent most of his life in the 20th century. I'm not sure he has a clue what year he's living in anymore. Um, but it's a reaction. It's a ferocious reaction against 
um, everything weird and strange and, and unnatural that the public has unleashed through the internet, and, and for them in many ways personified by Donald Trump. I just want to uh, say one thing in, in response to that, which you know, for the listeners who don't have uh, an inside knowledge of of Gurry's work, one of one of the interesting contributions that you make is a diagnosis of politics that it's not it's no longer about left versus right that the sort of core divide is between center and periphery so that sort of if you will partisan squabbling and washington is actually uh a symptom of what the institution has in common and that if you really want to understand uh sort of what's going on you can't look to what people are saying they might be saying talking points from the left or the right. You have to look at how they're saying it and to whom and sort of the motivation behind it. And, and there, it's the, the issue is fundamentally a question of trust and authority, if, if I'm getting that right. Um, yeah, I, mean, I would say we, we are the, the immediate and continuing effect of the digital dispensation was a tremendous fracturing of society, right? We used to be a mass society. There was a mass media. There was a mass market. Everything was, we were all, you know, agglomerated into a single blob. And um, obviously, if you were a producer in, in, in that world, you produced the lowest common denominator. And that's what we got. And it was pretty good. I mean, for the 20th century, it was not a bad time. Uh, that world is gone. And the good thing about it is you get a lot more personalized services. You can get exactly what you want online. Uh, the bad thing is, of course, uh, we have fractured into what I would call war bands. There, there are these crazy groups and, and less crazy groups, good, bad, and different uh, groups uh, that are where trust resides today. Trust does not reside with the old institutions. It resides in these in these fractured war bands that that make a, a point of fighting with one another, basically because the whole point is to attract attention to yourself. And of which, again, Donald Trump, I think, was like the ultimate master and genius at that game. What do you want institutions to do? So one thing I heard you say is that we need the ruling class to to be more humble in its rhetoric. Actually, actually, let's get into that for a second. So. One argument, uh, again, I don't, I don't have the data on this, and I'm not, I'm more of a phenomenologist than a data guy. But um, <laughs> you know, um, w one thing I, I imagine people saying in response to that is, I would love to be, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I actually am humble, and I, I worry about the fact that I've oversold, uh, that I've overpromised, and that I'm going to underdeliver. But I can't admit this humility in public because. My enemies are going to use that admission of uncertainty against me. They're going to weaponize anything I say. And in this age of sort of talking points, nobody's going to hear the uh, nobody's going to hear the it's complicated point. Instead, what they're going to hear is this guy's a flake. This guy's a flip flopper. He's uh, he's conceding too much to opposition. He's not taking a stand. I mean, if you look at successful politicians, I'm not sure that you would say on the whole, the ones that are most successful are humble. You you might say that the, the most successful ones are the ones with a tremendous narrative of righteousness, of good guys and bad guys, of us and them. Uh, maybe it's different in bureaucracies. You know, I think uh, being being an elected official might be different than being an appointed a, a official. But I, I, I wonder if uh, a president could win on an ethos of humility. Right now, no. 
It's that simple. But okay, I would not put that on the opposite side. I would put that on us. We, the public, demand to be told, I, I have lightning from heaven and I'm going to fix your life. And so we have, um, you know, we have politicians who want to fix everything from uh, as cosmic as the climate or, or as personal as obesity, right? I mean, it's like nothing is too gigantic or too, you know, personal enough that government isn't going to come and fix it. So um, I, I, I think as long as the public takes that stand, um, well, then, yeah, politicians are going to pander to us. However, I mean, you can have all the things that you mentioned and still have a, a modest demeanor about them. You can say, I think... I have a very strong feeling that the opposite side is is bad, and I am I am a crusader against that side, whether you are one side or the other or the third or the fourth, because it's more than two. Um, and 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 yet say now, but however, when we address the 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 issues that that we think are important, when we address the changes that we need to make, we need to make those together. It's not going to be me bringing the fire from heaven. It's going to be us trying to find a way forward. And here are my proposals, but they are amendable, and you will help me amend them. I mean, I don't see why that should be a, in the age of the internet, where that kind of discussion happens within groups of trust, right? Once you break out of the group of trust, then yes, everyone puts on the armor, and and then you know and they don't, and, and they lie and you're truthful and so forth. But within groups of trust, within the internet, you know, little communities, the vital communities, People are very honest about where they stand, and you know, can you help me with this? And people say, "Oh, well, I had this idea." Um, it's just basically expanding from that to the bigger community. Let's take one example. Uh, it's kind of a difficult one, but let's take the Federal Reserve. So, um, the Federal Reserve has to talk in such a way that um, they can't be too explicit. <laughs> because if they if they say what they believe, that will move markets, and um, it's a kind of postmodern condition where um, the the articulation of the truth actually changes the truth. Um, is there is there a way for the Federal Reserve to be humble in the way that it communicates? Um, well, it sure as hell should be considering their track record. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that some admission of like? I, you know, we're doing the best we can to fight inflation, but we might screw this up. Do, do you think that's going to, let's say, I don't know, prevent the next Occupy Wall Street or the next whatever it is when the market crashes or like sort of I what I one thing I heard in what you're saying is that ethos matters. It's not just about consequence. It's about calibrating expectation and that um, sort of instability is the result of a mismatch between how the message is being articulated and how it's being heard. Well, there are institutions that simply cannot fulfill their mission without appearing to be godlike. Uh, the CIA was like that. CIA is supposed to predict the future for the president. Well, you cannot predict the future. So every, every time that, for example, um, tomorrow resembled yesterday, then CIA got it right because we were predicting yesterday. But of course, what the president wants is discontinuities, 9-11s, you know, Pearl Harbors. Well, never, that, never, okay? That, that is, and it's not CIA's fault, it's the charter. The charter is a bad charter. If you look at the Fed, its, it's charter is godlike and there is no way they can fulfill that charter 
without pretending to be something they're not. But if there's an organization that has both organizations that have reasons to be humble is those two, but particularly the Fed, I think. Mm. So we're not talking about, let's say, getting rid of the CIA or getting rid of the Fed. We're just talking about changing what, changing the messaging? Like, what, what, what's got to change? I mean, I don't know what's got to change. I mean, you, both of those propositions should be on the table. You know, what do we get rid of and what do we keep? I think what's got to change is the distance. The distance between you and I are used to living in, in a very flat world. I have absolutely no idea where physically you are. But I mean, I have I have spoken with people who are half a world away. And here we are in my little laptop and we're talking to each other. It's a flat world. And, and um Donald Trump could be president and I could be tweeting what an idiot he is or whatever. And there he is, my little tweet and his little tweet, and we're right there together, okay? Um, meanwhile, you have these organizations from the 20th century, which are very, you know, mass organizations, deeply hierarchical. Well, that that doesn't work. That just doesn't work anymore. They're too slow for the internet age. Uh, they're too cumbersome. Uh, they don't gather enough information. And they're two easy targets. They're going to get torn to shreds before anything can be accomplished because they don't move fast enough to get anything done. So um, I think you need to flatten government. I think you need, you need to make it faster. I mean, people say there's no trust. I say there's no trust. But that's only a partial truth, all right? I mean, I, I, I'm willing to guess that you spent a lot of time at home in 2020. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. When you wanted goods, what did you do? I uh, went on my computer and I ordered them. <laughs> what? How did you do that? You put your credit card out there in this, you know, magic land of Amazon or whatever. And you said, okay, I'm spending all this money on my credit card out there. And if you're in, on Prime, like I am, two days later or less, there it is on my, on my doorsteps. Amazon has a lot of trust, massive trust. There is no reason why whole chunks of the government can't resemble Amazon, all right? So um, I think we need to do what was done in the first half of the 20th century, which took uh, an 18th century model of government and modernized it. Well, I think we now need to take a, an industrial model of government and digitize it. <laughs> There's the, we're smart enough to do this. It's just a question of... Um, understanding that's what needs to be done. Structural change comes before policy decisions. Um, we spend all our time fighting about policies, but it doesn't really matter because whichever policy wins, half or more of the public is going to just completely abscond from it and, and make it almost impossible to implement it. Um, so what you need is a structure where when you, when you decide on a policy, the public is marching together with you to see how it can be done best. So, and that, that requires structural change. I am not a revolutionary. I come from Cuba. This doesn't mean that we have to overthrow the government. It just means we have to rethink it. We have to reconfigure it. Uh, we've done that before. We can do it again. Amazon has a lot of trust amongst those who use it, but I have to say, you know, the brand of Amazon and the figure of Jeff Bezos are um, somewhat reviled um, out, you know, uh, outside outside of the large customer base. Like it, it, they they represent something that people on both the left and the right uh, seem to really chafe against, and I'm not sure that Amazon could escape the the sort of phenomenon that you describe in Revolt of the Public. Uh, in other words, um, even if you're successful, 
uh, you you can you could get slack from the public, be, you know, for being I don't know uh, too big. Simply being too big is a reason to be hated. Um, another would be, let's say the uh, you know the 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 description of the warehouses where the workers work, you know, from the left. Uh, but I'm sure there's like a right wing critique as well that sort of you know big business is destroying the localism uh, of mom and pop shops and all that. Whether you agree or disagree, I just think the the issue of trust in the internet age. It might. It just might not be soluble through anything, including, let's say, better government. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, better. Uh, uh, that's okay. That depends on a lot of things that that I'm not going to deal with here. But I think faster and flatter government, which is what I'm talking about. The sense that when um, when you elect somebody, say you're you're, you're a congressman, right? You elect, you know. Jane Blow over here. She's 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 my representative. You know what? When I when I she's kind of like my neighbor, and she was just like me, and and so I, I I'm gonna vote for her because she's not really a politician. She's she's one of us, and she comes to Washington, and suddenly, hey wait, she she's dressing differently. Hey wait, listen to the to the words she's using. Hey wait, she's she's not paying attention to me anymore. She seems to be talking to all those other people in Washington but not me. And how do I reach her? Well, I can't. She's at the top of this gigantically steep pyramid, and there are so many layers of protection in between, um, including if you try to get to Congress, all kinds of uh, you know, metal detecting machines, security. But I mean, it is terrifying to get through into a place, which, I mean, I'm old enough to tell you it was not always so. Um, and I think if you can bring that if you can bring that congressperson down to the level which they really are, which is you're just an American serving the government, which means you're representing me. Um, whether that person then is, is a good government uh, a capable person or not so good or a mediocrity, doesn't really matter. The system is giving you a person that you know who they are and you don't have the feeling that the system is cheating you, but you elect a neighbor and you get an elite who's not really interested in you, but what the other elites think. There's a, a sort of Hegelian description of social life that thinks one is the fundamental engines organizing everything is this struggle for recognition, this desire to one-up the other person, to be seen as superior in some way. And of course, uh, Fukuyama takes that thesis and and makes a more optimistic argument that liberal democracy, capitalism can sort of mediate this fundamental, I don't know, tendency to war, this fundamental tendency to compete and and sort of equalize relations by allowing people to feel at once like a master and at the same time like a slave. That sort of belonging to civil society gives gives us the magic formula where this, this state uh, me- mediates the, what would otherwise descend into a bar fight. And uh, I guess, you know, when I hear about the person getting elected and going to Washington and then being sort of high up on the pyramid, a part of me just wonders, isn't that just life? Isn't this just human nature, that desire to compete, to to be seen as superior? How can we possibly fix this? Um, this, this sense that there's going to be haves and there's going to be have-nots and that that's going to be on a relative basis, not an absolute one. So paradoxically, we come narcissism of small differences where in a society that's well off and where people actually are doing very well compared to other countries, that um, what they see is this person's doing better than me. And that exacerbates the, the enmity. 
And then you magnify that by the internet and by, you know, Instagram influencers and so on. Like there's some study about how people who, you know, women who go on Instagram, like come off feeling anxious and depressed because all they see are, you know, uh, models that they then feel that they have to look like. So <laughs> again, I guess that this is a sort of long winded way of saying, what do we do with that human element? That's just, you know, the fundamental Cain and Abel envy. You have something, I don't have it. I feel bad about myself. And um, let me, let me, I think I'll push back on that one. Cause I think again, um, I'm a, I'm a very old person. All right. And I come from another country. So let me give you both of those perspectives. I think American society is fundamentally not an envious one. Never has been. Every American that I have uh, ever dealt with, with very few exceptions, just wants to be uh, allowed to succeed or fail in his own uh, set of ambitions and and dreams and desires. Um, obviously, human condition being such, probably the ambitions always overmatch the reality at the end. That's true for all of us. I mean, I, when I was seven, I thought I was going to be a superhero, right? I mean, that didn't work out. So, um, but but... It is not a, a, a culture of envy. I think when we look at, at, our, um, at our politicians, I don't think anybody thinks, honestly, I want to be them. I, I think it's the opposite. I think we find them, who are these creatures? Where, where, what planet were they bred on? I mean, they, they, they sound and seem so alien to the normal way of life in America, including, of course, the fact that we're so flat with the, with the digital world and that we, we know exactly what we're doing. And whenever they talk about that, they sound like they're, you know, they're coming out of a cave or something. They just don't seem savvy. That's partly generational, of course, and, and to some extent, that's going to take care of that. But you know, there's a lot of uh, young people with old heads in Washington, I'll tell you that. And, and, um, and I think having elites who um, are, are understanding that the 20th century has, has ended, just having that, and I'll give you an example, and I'm, I'm not gonna name names, but it, I was in a powerful place. I mean, I really am not, I'm kind of a zero in Washington. I, I would say I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hero in Silicon Valley, but I'm a zero in, in Washington now. So, um, but this is actually a place of power in Washington, and a, a you know, the staff of a powerful person in Washington talking to me, several of them talking to me, and, and they kept saying, what do we say? What can we say? How can we tell them, you know? And I mean, I was listening to this, and these are young people, smart people, they were, and they, were, they knew the internet. They were not ignorant of that. But I, I told them, and I said, well, <laughs> have you ever thought of listening? <laughs> you know? And they were dumbfounded. They were just dumbfounded. Okay, that's, that's the difference. Um, you can have a culture of elite listening uh, instead of an, a culture of elite broadcasting. And, um, and the more you interact, the, the less you start to get that, that Hillary Clinton feeling that if they're out there at the bottom of the, pillar, of the pyramid making all that horrible noise, there must be a bunch of deplorable people who are racist and, and, and sexist, all kinds of terrible things. Um, and, and, and the more that, then we will all be like part of one, one community together. I mean, with very few exceptions, these are people who start out in life like the rest of us and, and, uh, you know, succeed by pleasing us and getting our votes. So why do they become different when they come up here? And, and, um, and how can we change the government, the structure of government so that they don't, they're not tempted to do that? And, 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 
that is, I think, honestly, that is the great political question of the 21st century. I love the appeal to listening, and it resonates very much with me. I mean, I, uh, as a rabbi and as someone who does what's called pastoral care, a lot of the work is just sitting with people and hearing their stories and accompanying them uh, at first and, you know, hopefully non-judgmentally and just, you know, trying to find a point of connection and seeing the the image of God in the other person. When I uh, When I think of a politician trying to do that, my worry is that um, it gets framed as zero sum. So if I listen to this person in private, they can feel that validation and that sense of I'm with you. But if I'm listening to someone in a town hall, then it angers someone that I'm listening to this person. And what about the other 900 people in the, in the room that I need to be listening to? So there's that. I think you get this critique. It's a kind of... Uh, I don't know, is it a Foucauldian critique or a post-colonial critique, but you see it on the left and the right, which is sort of like, even those who listen, you'll just be able to say in response, but they didn't listen to this voice. They didn't listen to that voice. There's sort of no end to the number of voices that uh, that one can and possibly should listen to. So, you know, is what wh- what do you recommend for the person who wa- in good faith wants to listen but is also, again, going to be confronted with this weaponization tactic of why do you only listen to these people? Um, and, and the second point, the second point is, uh, you know, doesn't your listening to these people in a, in a sense excuse or justify it um, in some way? Like now is not the time for listening. Now is the time for action, for fighting, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's a temperamental thing. I'm less of an activist type. I'm more of a, like, I want to, I'm just curious. I love people. I want to understand where they're coming from. That mode doesn't seem to be so popular amongst millennials. <laughs> uh, in the, I don't know if it's the past four or five years, but things definitely seem to have taken a turn for like inherently the act of listening, especially to people you disagree with is seen as that's a privilege. You only listen because um, you don't feel personally attacked by what they're saying. But to demand that I listen is unfair. Well, I mean, that's that's the Zoomers even more than the millennials. Uh, the, the, the generation under the um, the millennial after the millennials, uh, we could talk about that them if you want to, but um, that they, they are afflicted with a lot of strange ideas and, and a lot of strange anxieties and, and uh, depressions, for example, and high rates of suicide that probably flow from those ideas. Uh, the best thing you could say uh, about that is um, uh, from the perspective of an old person, they're young, all right? Um, all we can we can hope for is that like the rest of us, they will, they will come to realize that listening to the extent that you listen to voices that you disagree with, you strengthen your own arguments. Or on the rare occasion, you may find that your arguments are flawed and maybe there's another argument that's better. Um, so I, I, and, and the, the, the model of going to, you know, some place where there's a hundred people on, on the, that you ask questions from and, you know, uh, and maybe three get to ask and, and the rest don't, that's a false model. This is the internet age. All right. You can listen to millions. All right. And there, and there are ways of doing that. Uh, and 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 um, ways of scanning opinion that you know you you can at least be aware that these 
I mean, something like QAnon, for example, okay? I mean, should anybody just say, well, I'm never going to listen to that. It's, it's a crazy idea. Well, it's there. It seems to have been important enough that it drove people to do some crazy things in, the, in this town that I live in. Um, so, I mean, I, I was there for the Cold War. I thought Marxism-Leninism was a repulsive uh, philosophy, and I experienced it in, in, in Cuba in a fairly ramshackle way. Um, but you want to learn what it is. You want to understand what it is. And un learning and listening and understanding things that you profoundly disagree with and even sometimes find loathsome is part of, of, of wisdom, part of understanding you know, how your side can have an advantage over the other. Pretending that you have the power to silence the other because you're not hearing them is, is, is a young person's um, fallacy, I think. Mm. That was one of the things I really enjoyed about your book um, was just the way that you set it up tonally with part one being, this is just me trying to understand. And only once you did that, did you go to part two, which was, and here's what I think we ought to do. Um, that model, actually, I know you're, you're in a certain sense a futurist, but that model of like understand first and then be normative second actually strikes me as kind of 19th century in its own way. Like it's sort of the Weberian model of the, the fact value distinction, right? Um, f first, there's just things as they are. And second, there's things as they ought to be. One of the arguments from pragmatism and postmodernism is that we can't actually make this distinction. Foucault makes this point as well, right? Now, and you referenced it in one of your recent articles, that sort of knowledge and power are two separate things. Knowledge is in a function of power. I mean, I, I personally, I'm willing to, uh, to concede the point, but I just find it a, a repugnant, uh, repugnant uh, conclusion to operate from. But that, you know, nevertheless, if, if, if it's true, it's true. I have to accept it. Um, <laughs> so I think the, the question is, is it true that, is it, is it true? Is it good? Is it normatively correct? that one should be a kind of scientist first, a researcher first, and only secondarily a, so an evaluator, an advocate. Um, or if it really is the case that we bring our political biases and other biases to research to begin with, do we have to make this postmodern turn and sort of say from the onset, you know what, there is no truth, there is no, uh, there is no research program that's going to be... Uh, rigorous fully and we have to just admit bias and admit um the conclusion as the premise and then work from there so kind of you know within anthropology there's uh there's the 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 19th century model this sort of colonialist model is like let's understand and then we can conquer and then now this sort of vogue in anthropology is to situate yourself <laughs> and say i come to this work you know with all of these things about me, my race, my class, my gender, whatever it is, and that informs, you know, why I'm going in the first place, what I'm looking for, why I'm looking for it, and that becomes like a bit as as important to the research as just describing the so-called natives. Well, I mean, you, I take it, are a man of God. Um, truth belongs to God. We are humans. We do not have truth in the absolute. Uh, total, every perspective, every moment uh, that that uh, that God would have. So, from that perspective, from the perspective of a non-God 
individual, of course we can't achieve uh, truth in a platonic way, the pure truth. We got a perspective on the truth. A perspective on the truth, by the way, and, and, and having uh, power and truth be interrelated, that can be interrelated in, in antagonistic ways, okay? So you can be very powerful at persuading people of truth and yet be an outsider in politics. Um, as an analyst, the way I always felt it, I guess I gave away my, my, my uh, method a little bit at the beginning of this talk, is that I, just by temperament, I'm a bit of a, kind of a, not an insider, not an outsider, kind of, my perspectives tend to be temperamentally odd, all right, um, which I always has found to be a big advantage, and I have sort of turned it into a method. So, for example, if you're analyzing uh, Osama bin Laden, okay, it was a basically inside inside the agency where I was working at the time. It was a given that you called them the bad guys. So, what are the bad guys saying? They were the bad guys doing, you know. Well, he, well, he was the worst of the bad guys, man who was essentially a mass murderer. So you had this idea that Osama bin Laden woke up every morning and said, oh, what can I do that's bad today? And, you know, what, how, can, how can I eat children? I mean, and of course, if you research what he was writing and you put yourself by some terrible effort into that bizarre moral universe, you realize that this man thought he was a hero. He thought he was, he and his terrorists were like the equivalent of the companions of Mohammed, who had as a small band of people conquered the world. Um, so, and they had certain beliefs that weren't our beliefs of what they were, they were believing. We thought they were believing certain things that were nothing like what they actually said. Um, but their beliefs were being falsified in the real world. So if we had said, and the, the problem with us is, again, the bureaucracies at work and politics is at work, but if we had said, look, they say they want to do this, but look what they're actually doing, would have been a lot more persuasive for our side than us saying, well, you know, they, they hate us because of our freedom or whatever, you know? Um, so it's an effort, and, and nobody can do it fully because we're not God. You know, I can't pretend that I got inside Osama bin Laden's head and knew exactly what he was thinking. But he's written a lot. And you start thinking, well, how can a person who writes all this stuff and does all these terrible things, what's, what is the point of view that you're talking about? And, I mean, that's, to me, like I said before, that's how you achieve understanding. And it is primarily important uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with people that you disagree with very vehemently. No, that's fascinating. So within hermeneutics, which is kind of the this, this study of how to understand uh, text, how to understand uh, people, how to understand really any any artifact of uh, meaning, there's there's a lot of debate about kind of what method you should bring to this task of understanding. Uh, a Straussian will look at a text and let's say, you know, there's the apparent meaning of what's being said, but there's a, a an esoteric or a secret meaning here that needs to be uncovered. Uh, Freudian will look at a text and they'll say, you know, this story by Kafka seems to be about a castle, but actually it's about his mother <laughs> or whatever. Uh, you know, right? A Marxist will, will, will say it's all about class warfare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, new criticism will look at a text and they'll say this is about um, the aesthetic delight in irony. It's not about the conclusion. Uh, it's about ambiguity and ambivalence. In other words, each school of interpretation is going to have its sort of go-to method, its go-to conclusion. And um, 
the question is, uh, does one need a theory of mind or a hermeneutic uh, methodology to know how to approach Osama bin Laden's writings or the speeches of a politician? Does does it matter who's speaking, um, sort of which theory of mind you're using, or is it a one size fits all where you know we basically we take people at their word and uh, and this is how we sort of parse it? Or do you take more of a, I don't know, reader reception theory where it's like you have to look at who they're talking to and what their goals are? What, how do you think about that sort of those problems in hermeneutics? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not sure that it goes as deep as theory of mind. Maybe it does. That's like I hadn't thought of that before, honestly. Um, but you certainly, for example, have to understand the cultures, the gigantic cultural gaps and you have to understand that you are speaking from a culture. The Americans seem to believe that, well, everybody else has stories, but, but we have science, you know. And to an American, to, to a foreigner, of course, it's like, why, why are they even saying, you know, what they're saying? I don't understand. So we speak in languages that, that uh, many times people in other countries don't understand because we think we're being scientific, right? But of course, we're being scientific within our own culture. Uh, being scientific in, in a different culture, you can come up with an entirely different set of words and concepts. So you can't understand Osama bin Laden without knowing the, the history of Islam as filtered through his mind, all right? And you can't understand uh, Osama bin Laden without knowing that he's an exceedingly modern human being, the child of a multi-multi-millionaire with a privileged background who understood um, uh, the internet, for example, way better than our government did. Um, so, you, you know, this bizarre mix of modern culture having an impact on a very traditional culture and this, this person from a privileged position trying to somehow or another make his culture, to justify his culture by committing these horrible atrocities. Um, it, it's not an easy problem in the sense of is it, how do you get inside that person's head? It never is. And, and like I said, this success is always partial. But, it, but my own... My own belief, and the, the way I always deal with it is, and I guess this is just training, is I, I'm a child of, of propaganda analysis. So um, what it really is about, you know, you kept saying, well, this is really about, well, I mean, who knows what anything is really about. But you always have someone, a person who's an author, Okay, who is that person? Where do they work? Who, who do they work for? Who's paying them? Uh, what are their ideals? What are they trying to further? Then you have a message and you go, well, why did they use those words? Why didn't they use any different words? You know, what, why was it this length? Was it, why was it in this medium? Uh, and then you have an intended audience and you go, who are those people that he's aiming to, all right? And then you ask, well, did he reach those people or was it a totally unintended audience? And what was the effect that he wanted to have on that audience? And was it an effect or was it an unintended effect? And you have the most um, minor little things that are so misunderstood. Um, you know, like you can have, for example, something as simple as a, a photograph of a of a dictator. All right, if you, there are photographs of Augusto Pinochet that make Americans laugh, and they're funny. I mean, they're just funny because he basically his buttons on his chest are bursting. He's, his back is bent back so far and he's looking at you like, I'm going to grab you by the neck and, and throttle you, right? I mean, it's just almost like a caricature of himself. And I am sure, as sure can be, that your average Chilean of the time looked at that, at that photograph and shook in their shoes, you know, because 
he was not to them a figure of fun. He was a terrifying figure. So the, the veil of culture has to be kind of pushed aside a little bit, uh, and the message has to be understood the way that it was intended. Uh, and it's hard. It's hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but if you don't make the effort, you don't get there. In the ancient world, philosophers tried to influence tyrants or <laughs> kings, uh, emperors. And uh, I think if we accept your conclusion, that's a poor use of the philosopher's time and energy because that's still a kind of top-down model. Um, you wouldn't want to counsel the king. You'd rather want to figure out how to reach the people. That would be a, a better uh, strategy. So I'm just wondering, here's someone who maybe in a previous age might have had the ear of a king. Um, what's the theory of change now for, for Martin Gurry? Like, what uh, in, in your ideal scenario... I don't think it's it's counseling the president um, necessarily, though if it is, I'd be curious to hear about that. But like sort of what if everything goes right, how, how do you make an impact? You're talking about me personally? Yeah. You you in terms of your, you know, the ideas that you that you want adopted from the bottom up. Oh, I mean, I I, <laughs> I rarely look on on uh, on anything I do as having much of an impact. But but I, I mean I guess if I if I were to say what is my ideal, is to have people understand that we're living in a very different world from what they think. Even now, even you know, it's been almost it's been eight years since the book was published first, and like three three years since uh, the second edition came out. Um, even now, people talk in terms of right and left and and Republicans and Democrats, and I mean again. It's like the picture of Pinochet. Open your eyes and look at what you're seeing, okay? There is no Republican Party. There's a chaos there. There's no Democratic Party. I mean, they managed to put Biden over the top, but they're completely fighting among themselves. Um, you have these war bands that gather for the, the, the purpose of, of power, and and they are very you know, better or worse intended and more or less uh, sincere in, in, their, in their public presentation of their ideas. Um, but look at what you're seeing. Look at a world that is really cracking open because our institutions are not adequate to their tasks. And, um, and if you love liberal democracy, don't fight about this policy or that policy. Fight about how do we get a government that works, a government that is actually functional in the digital age. Um, to the extent that I can budge somebody an inch in that direction, and in the end, it's the public I care about, because we're going to be voting the people into office, um, I will have done my tiny little bit of good in the world, I guess. Mm. Let's say that sort of every future uh, politician and, and every sitting politician reads the book and is persuaded by what you just said. And like, we, we want to make government better. But tell us, how do we do that? I mean, this is a giant bureaucracy. Even if you're a senator, you don't have so much power within this this giant beast. So, like, what can we actually do? Well, obviously, if we say we can't do it, then we won't. <laughs> we have done it before, in the, uh, in, in, historically speaking. We did it twice. We did it at the foundation, and we did it in the 20th century. So it can be done, of course. There are many things that can be done illustratively, right? Uh, I know Boris Johnson has... You know, started out being one one kind of um, prime minister and seems to have become an entirely different one with COVID. But at one point, he had the idea of moving big chunks of the national uh, bureaucracy in in uh, in Britain outside of London. 
I think that would be a tremendous idea. We have some 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 parts of the federal government that are not in in uh, Washington. We should send out more. I think it's hard to pretend that um, the people out there are, are deplorables when you're one of them. Okay, so that's one instance of it. I think yes, this is a huge bureaucracy. I think probably one person in ten. Uh, that works in in Washington is needed here, all right. And in a sense of actually doing a job that, that the nation needs to keep the state going, uh, it doesn't have to be a massacre. You don't just kind of lay people off, and you have, you know, people starving at at, at, uh, at the foot of the White House because you know the the, the White House staff got laid off. Um, but gradually, as a plan, you. Look at the structure. You reduce the structure. The structure is going to require fewer people. That's what happens. Uh, that's, that's the Amazon model. That's the digital model. Number one, you're going to have a lot more input from below. And number two, you're going to have very much fewer layers. And number three, you're going to move a lot faster. Those are the three requisites of, of government. And can we do it? Well, of course we can do it. it, it it's a matter of will. And I think, and I think honestly, um, the Zoomer generation we mentioned, they seem consumed with their own anxieties. So maybe it'll be the generation after that. I don't know. But it will seem so preposterous to people who were essentially born with a with a cell phone in their hands uh, that we live in an institutional world of horse and buggy mm. uh, um, speed. I think there's sort of one argument about Am the difference between Amazon and government, uh, sort of the obvious difference is that Amazon has a profit motive. And so you can you can tell when Amazon is succeeding or not by you know how much revenue it brings in, what its gross margins are. Like there's a Popperian falsification method by which Amazon and shareholders can can tell whether it's moving in the right direction. With uh with politics there doesn't seem to be an equivalent falsification method for a couple reasons. Uh, one is obviously the lack of profit. Um, another would be like lobbying is actually sort of antithetical to that. Um, and a third, right, lo lobbying in Washington is the equivalent of people lobbying for their jobs at, at, a, at a company rather than <laughs> letting people decide whether they're succeeding or failing. They're just appealing to the boss. And I think the third but most fundamental issue is that democracy is in some sense a popularity contest. And so people can uh, support things that are bad for them, and that's democracy. And if you sort of, the, the motivations for supporting something uh, bad for one are complicated, but in a, in a business, there's a CEO and, you know, or a board of directors, and they call the shots. That's oligarchy. That's monarchy. Democ democracy has more constraints because we value process as much as we value consequence. Right. So you asked me whether it was possible, and I said it's possible. If you, are you telling me that it's exceedingly hard? It is exceedingly hard. Now, I, I would not make the parallel from Amazon as a company. I would make uh, the parallel from um, the entire business world. Basically, if you are a business that does not deliver the goods, you go out of business. And by the way, during the digital age, one of the things that has happened is there's been a much faster churning of companies both in and out of the S&P 500 and in and out of existence. 
Uh, yeah. Everything is speeded up. So who decides? Who decides um, in the case of government, right. though? Who's right. delivering? Right. The so goods? that that is the problem. That's a major, major difficulty. I agree with you there. Um, but it it gets decided by it has to be decided by enough of a majority in the public and enough people with wisdom that get elected to office that it can be done. Is that an easy thing to happen? No, I think normally what happens is the old system becomes so cumbersome, so painful to work. You know, if you are um, on on uh, you know the, the toll road here in, in Virginia, and route, route 267 going 65 miles an hour, and um, and everybody else is speeding by you, and and, and you're in a horse and buggy, and you're doing like 10 miles an hour, or five miles an hour. And you're seeing everybody get there ahead of you, and you're terrified that that, that you know that your conveyance is going to break down at any moment. That you're going to basically not be able to do anything, and I think our government is fast heading to that condition. Um, then, out of just desperation, people will try it. I think. Um, I hope we're wise enough to get there beforehand. But the rea the human reality is, you wait for the the car to break down before you buy the new one, and I think that mm -hmm. may be what happens. Thank you for that. So I want to just change gears a, a little bit and ask you some questions that are on the more philosophical side. One is about uh, this uh, Nazi jurist, Carl Schmitt, who's had a ton of influence, um, you know, not just uh, in Germany, but sort of globally. Uh, he, he's got a lot of ideas that, that have become mainstream. One is the sort of the friend-enemy distinction as fundamental to what politics is about. Um, and the other is the idea that the sovereign is the one who decides on the state of exception. In his uh, in his essay where he gives his theory of the sovereign, which is a kind of descriptive account of how liberal democracy is unsustainable and ultimately will lead to dictatorship, he was writing in the context of um, 1920s Weimar Germany when he came up with this theory. Um, he starts the essay off in the, uh, it's called political theology with a fascinating argument and he, and he was a Catholic, by the way, he says that every political organization is the secular analog to a theological idea, a theological view of the world. That basically it's, it's impossible not to have a political theology, a politics grounded in some metaphysical account of what's true and what's good. And that the his theory of the state of exception, which is basically going to eventually lead him to justify Nazism. It's going to lead him to justify, um, th this is a point that uh, Giorgio Agamben, a, a left-wing sort of Marxist commentator, points out. The, the, the point in Schmidt is that Nazism never abolished the liberal constitution. It actually just invoked one of the articles of that constitution uh, to give it the emergency power to suspend everything else. And so for the entire duration of Nazism, it was still operating, as it were, under the constitution, the bylaws of the liberal regime that preceded it, which is a terrifying thought. Um, but anyways, so Schmidt says that the, the theological analog to the state of exception is the miracle. That sort of there's the laws of nature, but God can suspend those laws of nature. And that sort of belief in miracles, it's not about did they happen or not. It's really just... D the the miracle proves God's the sovereign, not nature, not naturalism. So um, my question is, 
do you do you agree with this account, not of the state of exception, but that every political idea or organization rests upon a theological foundation? And if you do agree with it, what do you think the theological foundation is for the politics that you envision, the politics inaugurated by the fifth wave, the the information tsunami, the the empowerment of the border as opposed to the center? Well, let me just say, I, I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying this. I, I really don't understand the fad with uh, Schmidt and Heidegger. You know, they're tremendous influence. I mean, at, at different levels. Um, I, I, I find Heidegger unreadable and Schmidt trivial in many ways. Um, I, the question that you asked me, 100% agree. I think we are all spiritual animals in some weird way. None of us accepts, well, I'm just a bunch of flesh and bone wandering around trying to feed myself and satisfy my appetites. All of us, all of us, uh, with very few exceptions, think, how am I justified? What, what is my purpose? You know, what greater than, what thing greater than, than me am I a servant of, all right? Uh, the old Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody, you know? Um, it, it, it's, and, and I, well, I will confess that I am not a religious person. So I'm, this is being, being said from the perspective of a person who does not participate in religion. But I think is, is just uh, empirically, that's who we are. Okay, so when you're talking about politics, which is uh, how we dispense power, well, of course, there has to be a justification that goes all the way back. Uh, and I'm a very simple-minded person when it comes to that. I don't, I, I, it's, I'm not Heidegger, I'm not Schmidt, I don't have all these original thoughts. I believe in liberal democracy, and uh, there is an issue there that also has not often been addressed by thinkers, that if, uh, I, troubles me a great deal, which is a liberal democracy is an offshoot of Christianity. Uh, and and it always amazes me how the the most ferocious enemies of of religion, uh, like the the cult of identity today, for example, people who think that religion is is just kind of oppressive force, um, are completely indebted for their ideas to to Christian doctrines. All right, and um, and the reality is, as long as we had a, a large number of Americans who participated in those religions, the fact that we were a secular uh, society was, was a tremendous advantage because nobody got to impose Christianity on anybody, any flavor of Christianity on anybody, whether you were uh, Jewish or whether you were like me, not a Christian of, or a religious person of any kind. I think the problem, the intellectual problem, comes when you completely divorce the theory of liberal democracy from religion. Uh, and yet its roots, its metaphysical roots, go back to Christianity. So that was levitating. Now this, this high thing that we have come up with is levitating up there, and you're saying, for example, equality is good. Why? Well, there's a long chain of arguments that goes back to, well, world equal in the eyes of God, okay? And it, it is, I mean, we're endowed by our creator, we're self certain uh, uh, rights, <laughs> Well, okay, uh, you and me are probably equal in about 3% of the things we do and very different and unequal in everything else. It's an obvious fact about humanity that we're very in, 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 in everyday life and, and in our abilities and our interests and our, our histories and our cultures, 
we're different. We're not equal, we're different. So, but there is a way in which you can say we are equal that goes back to Christianity that we just assume. And nobody prov provides a definition of, of a non-Christian uh, uh, metaphysical foundation for equality. I think that's dangerous. Because then you're going to get somebody like Schmidt saying, oh, by the way, we're not equal. And by the way, it's some other thing like the enemy. And, and this really has nothing to do with anything. And suddenly the whole thing disappears like, like a fog under the sun. And, and that concerns me. That does concern me. And I believe, I believe in liberal democracy. I believe in the old ways. I'm old enough to, to believe that you know, those Christian ideals that you know, many of them Protestant, but many of them just metaphysical, like like uh, equality in the eyes of God, um, are what fueled our our system. And when that fuel gets taken away, it might stall. I generally agree with that. I'll push back slightly, just um, in terms of two thinkers who are important in the history of liberal democracy. One is Hobbes, and the other Spinoza. Hobbes, I, of course, both of them were influenced by scripture, influenced by. Um, a, a, a Christian context, and in Spinoza's case, also a, Jew, a Jewish one. But Hobbes's method is atheistic. You know, whether he was an atheist or not, I leave to the Hobbes scholars. But his entire project, kind of the founding of modern political theory, is to try to articulate why the state and not religious authority should be the grounding principle. And he has to do that by appealing to nature, by appealing to a naturalistic account of the human condition rather than a theological account. Uh, interestingly, Hobbes is credited as being the first kind of theorist of liberalism. And the equality that he grants us is not the equality of all of us being created by God, but rather the equality of we all fear death. And since not even the toughest guy in the wilderness is going to be free from the anxiety of the fact that a band of 10 weaker people could get together and club him to death in the night, he's got to form a compact. <laughs> the jock has to form a compact with the nerd. Uh, it's not It's not based a bit upon the fact that he realizes a, a dignity in the other through uh, shared faith or anything of the sort. So I, I agree with you that culturally and historically, like freedom, freedom from and freedom for religion, it operates within the history of Protestantism vis-a-vis -vis Catholicism. But I also think it's important to flag um, the opposite point, which is that liberal democracy in a certain telling is actually founded by heretical Christians <laughs> whose account was a desire to return to naturalism, not because they wanted to live in a state of nature, but because they thought that only by describing man uh, as he actually is, could we then come to a view of what politics is for. Well, yeah, but I mean, I don't think Hobbes came to conclusions that um, your average identitarian out there would find comforting. <laughs> okay, so uh, so Sh so Schmidt is trivial. Um, I guess uh, who do you think is the best thinker then of liberal democracy? Um, is there is there a hero that you have an intellectual hero who you think gives the best defense, or or is it that rather? We just we appeal to lived experience. Liberal democracy is is sort of a self evident good for people. We're simple people. We just we we want our luxury goods. We want our middle class life. We want a, a world free of fighting and, and instability. And it doesn't really matter how you justify that. 
in that sense, maybe you know the 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 defender of liberal democracy is a kind of Richard Rorty type uh, academic pragmatist who's sort of saying, let's not get bogged down in the weeds of metaphysics. That just you know that leads to religious war. Let's just sort of focus on uh, what we can do. Well, earlier on, I guess last year, I was in in uh, Vienna, Austria, and I would say, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree that maybe liberal democracy is a more experienced system than than an ideological one. But there is an ideology, and and the the people that I like best, and I don't know if they're the best, but the the ones that, that sing that to me are. Two Viennese, uh, Karl Popper and Friedrich Hayek, uh, who, in very different ways and both with, I think, some flaws in their thinking, um, try to wrestle with number one, the, the relationship of, between science and liberal democracy, and number two, the information, the, the relationship between information and, and knowledge and liberal democracy. And I thought both of them gave pretty good accounts of both, with flaws, with flaws, but. But uh, I, I always read those two and, and walk away refreshed. Great. So this is my last sort of uh, substantial question, which is um, I think you can get an account from both Popper and Hayek that liberal democracy is going to win out in the so-called marketplace of ideas. Um, it's just... It's just a matter of time. Sort of don't focus on the volatility of a particular historical moment where it's fallen into disrepute. Just look to the look to the end goal. Like human human society flourishes best in a liberal democracy relative to the other. This is sort of Fukuyama's account as well, though he he gets it from Hegel. And so sort of don't worry about illiberalism in the short term. Just keep your eye on the prize. You know, we'll get there. Do you sh- share that rosy outlook? Um, because I, I get more of a sort of Anything can happen. Uh, more of a contingency uh, approach in in your writing. That sort of liberal democracy is the best, but that doesn't mean that it's the it's necessary or sufficient. It, it could fold and never return. Yeah, history <laughs> history is contingent, and um, anybody who thinks that there is a determinism uh, to any system or or nation is it, not a student of history. That said, uh, I would say that Fukuyama, who's taken all kinds of flack for writing about the end of history, has been, since, fundamentally correct. Okay, it's not just in the future that liberal democracy may triumph, it's that when you look at the world today, it's the only system that exists. There is no alternative to liberal democracy. Nobody in the world is saying, I want to I want to impose Putinism in my country. All right, nobody in the world is saying I want to follow the same trajectory as that crowd in, in Beijing, and because they, they, they've been so successful with their economy, you know, they may borrow elements from each, or they may um, uh, try to get whatever they're successful at and, and implement in their country, uh, but even Putin has elections. Uh, they're, they're obviously cheated, but liberal democracy as a legitimizing uh, form of government today is uh, without competition. When let me tell you, 
I was like again one last time. I will appeal to my my ancientness. Um, I was there when there was a serious rival to liberal democracy, and when I didn't know which side was going to win. Okay, uh, and since the Soviet Union went out of business, um, there have been no rival democracy. Uh, there are systems, no rival ideologies. So. Um, Fukuyama was right. Nobody never gets credit for that. Ideologically speaking, he was right. Now, to finish on a down note, um, there is such a thing as nihilism. You don't need uh, a system to beat a system. You just need somebody who wants to destroy the system to do it. And that is probably the challenge of our age is not fighting a, a rival ideology like, like um, Marxism-Leninism, but fighting nihilistic tendencies inside our own society. Hmm. Well, that's a great point, I think, to end on. Uh, even though it seems dark, I think it's uh, actually kind of a hopeful note, which is that we have it in our power and our agency to fight nihilism wherever we uh, find it, uh, starting perhaps within ourselves and moving outward <laughs> in our local communities. So uh, I thank you for uh, your time and your insight and your part in uh in painting an optimistic picture, but also a realistic one. And uh, I hope the listeners out there will uh, will be inspired to cultivate more humility, more listening, um, and uh, also just more awareness that whether we like it or not, we, we are living in an in a incredibly strange new time where trust and authority are just not what they were. And we, we do ourselves and our descendants well to uh to at least acknowledge that thank you martin thank you meditations with zohar is produced by jack pombrian zachary davis and me zohar atkins it is produced in partnership with soul shop and lyceum studios you can learn more about the show by visiting my website zoharatkins.com and if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.